Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at what it means to be a friend with the triune God. And we talked about uh, what it means to be friends with God the Father and God the Son. And this morning, I want to turn our attention to a person that, as far as the Trinity goes, probably gets either the least amount of attention or way too much attention in the wrong way. And so... Um, I want to start, though, this morning by reading to you a short little essay um, by C.S. Lewis, who's uh, just a prolific writer, um, especially on the Christian faith. And he wrote a collection of essays and a little booklet that's put together called Present Concerns. And this one is entitled Three Kinds of Men. And in it, he says, there are three kinds of people in the world. The first class is of those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure, regarding man and nature as such as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. The second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the categorical imperative, or the good of society, and they honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than this claim will allow. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided. They're like a soldier or a schoolboy's life into on parade and off parade, or in school and out of school. But Lewis goes on to say there's a third class of people in the world. And those that can say, like St. Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have gotten rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple method of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egotistic Uh, Will has been turned around, reconditioned, and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs. It is theirs. All their time in belonging to him belongs also to them, for they are his. And because there are three classes, any merely twofold division of the world into good and bad is disastrous. It overlooks the fact that the members of the second class to which most of us belong are always and necessarily unhappy. You see, the tax which moral conscience levies on our desires does not, in fact, leave us with enough to live on. If we are in this class, we must either feel guilt because we have not paid the tax or poverty because we have. The Christian doctrine that there is no salvation by works done to the moral law is a fact of daily experience. Back or on, we must go, but there is no going on simply by our own efforts. In the new self, the new will does not come at his own good pleasure to be born in us. We cannot produce him synthetically. The price of Christ is something, in a way, much easier Than moral effort, it is to want him. It is true that the wanting itself would be beyond our power, but for one fact, 
The world is so built that it helps us desert our own satisfactions because they desert us. War and trouble and finally old age take every one of them from us. All those things that the natural self hoped for at its setting out. Begging is our only wisdom. And want, in the end, makes it easier for us to be beggars. Even on those terms, God's mercy will receive us. Now, it strikes me in this discussion of these three types of men that Lewis is zeroing in on something that each and every one of our hearts desires. Each and every one of us wants comfort. The the first person he's describing here They go about securing that comfort by taking advantage of the world and taking whatever they want, right? That's what he means by taking the material of this world and cutting it into the pattern of whatever they want it to be. If that's fame, if that's money, if that's a big bank account, whatever that is, they set about to refashion this world into what will give them comfort. The second group of people are also looking for comfort, but they look for comfort with someone else's rules. That may be the, the will of God. It may be uh, being morally good. But this type of person is also seeking to find comfort in knowing that they are good just by somebody else's definition. Their life is divided, Lewis says, like a soldier or a schoolboy's life. They're, they're either in school or they're out of school. And this is, I agree with Lewis, where most people live their lives. They live their lives under these systems that they think will make them feel better. But also, like Lewis, I agree, it's not, it's not enough. We, we're never going to be good enough. And, and that's why you find those people who are just trying to be morally good, they're often the most miserable people you will ever meet. Their life is not marked by a sense of joy that comes from the freedom of Christ. The common theme in these first two is people trying to seek and find comfort by their own means. Lewis also wrote in Mere Christianity, in religion, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. This third way of living is marked by surrender. Surrender to creating our own comfort, either by trying to go out and take it from the world or molding ourselves to some system, even God's will, instead, it's one of surrender. And when we surrender and when we turn to him, we are gifted with the promise of comfort. And and as we look at God the Spirit this morning, the affinity, the thing that we are basing our friendship off of with him is comfort. Just as a a reminder here this morning, we've said that in every friendship, 
there's a shared affinity. If you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, that, that every friendship that we have is based on something. There's some shared affinity between the two people to create the friendship. We looked at with God the Father how that shared affinity was love. And it's so much more than that, but that's the core of it. We looked at the shared affinity of grace with God the Son. And this morning, I hope you leave here learning that for God the Spirit, the shared affinity is comfort. And when you stop and think about it, these are all things that we desire. We, we all desire to be loved. We all need grace. <laughs> and we all seek comfort wherever we can. In John 14, 16, and 17, this, some verses that we read last week talking about Jesus. And he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Son of God's incomparable gift of dying on the cross, taking your sin and my sin upon himself to restore us back to the living God, to, to restore our relationship, even I say friendship with God, is then followed up by an even greater gift that, that's equally invaluable in our lives, and that's the gift of his spirit inside of us, his presence with us. However, I don't think we often give the Holy Spirit the attention and the importance that it deserves. It's quite possible for us to tend to overlook the Holy Spirit, especially in comparison to Jesus. Our neglect of him may even grieve him, as we'll see this morning. I invite you this morning to learn about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. And this is an important subject for us, and again, it's, it's often overlooked. We, we rarely give enough attention to honoring God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Some people are more focused on glorifying the love of Jesus than that of the Father. Other people are preoccupied with the decrees of the Father, putting the work of the Son in the background. However, very few of us have given adequate attention to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, the third person of the Trinity is referred to as the Spirit or the Holy Spirit in our Bibles. And these names describe his nature as being a pure, spiritual, and immaterial being. And that his character's preeminent quality is holiness. In addition to his personal title, we also have a, an official title for him in this verse that I just read where he is called the Comforter in English. And this word in the original language was paracleto, and we've translated that into English, into uh, paraclete. Um, Johnny shared a small uh, podcast with his small group where the podcaster was 
thinking the author of a book was saying a pair of cleats instead of paraclete. <laughs> but we need to understand that that name comforter is, is not a, a, a complete translation of that word. While it's a fair translation from some perspective, it, it only represents one aspect of the word that's being used there. The word paraclete is like a, a beam of light that is split into seven colors, and comforter is only one of them. This morning, we're, we're just going to focus on this official title of the Holy Spirit and his gracious work in our lives. And the word, the word paraclete is, is very full of meaning, and, it, and it's difficult to convey into one single word. It, it literally means called to or called beside another to help them so the word paraclete it's it's not just an advocate a person who is called to speak for and and pleading our case it's it's much wider than that it means someone who is called to come to our aid to to help us in our weakness to suggest things to us to guide us to to advocate for us that is part of it but the paris the paraclete also um calls to us for our benefit. The, the paraclete is our, our teacher. It, it's the, the thing that brings things back into remembrance. It, it's our comforter. That The paraclete's work is to strengthen us by admonishing us and instructing us and encouraging us and comforting us. The word paraclete is just too extensive to be exchanged for any one single word in our language. And this word study could easily become the entire sermon, and I'm not going to do that. John Owen wrote a nice, short, 384-page book on the subject in very small font that if you can read it, I recommend it, but it, it, is, a, it, is, it, is, a, it is something that will put you to sleep. So, so I just really wanted to scratch the surface and, and just introduce the word and some of its meaning to you this morning and understand when I say comforter I'm I'm talking about a part of it but it, it really means so much more I want to take the rest of our time this morning and talk about what what friendship between God the spirit or the paraclete and ourselves looks like and I'm going to do that by breaking up the remaining part of the sermon into basically just two categories his part of the relationship in our part of the relationship, right? Because we've said throughout this whole series that for it to be a real friendship, it has to be a two-way friendship. It cannot just be one way. And so first, I want to look at his part in the relationship. And again, there's um, a book by John Owen called Communion with God. Um, There's some modern, uh, Justin Taylor is the author, editor of the one that I'm reading that has helped me through this series. Um, And I do commend that book to you. It's still difficult to read, but it is a, a good book. Um, but Owen is very helpful with lists. He, he breaks things up into three things, four things, five things. And so what I want to do is, is basically just kind of follow Owen's pattern of walking through the Scripture and just looking at what the Word says about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so the first thing the Spirit brings to our mind is the things of Christ, just as Jesus had promised his disciples in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So it's the Holy Spirit's job, ultimately, to be the teacher. And he said, well, but Dale, you're here teaching us. Yes, that is true. But it is ultimately the Holy Spirit's job to take the words that I am saying and either confirm them as truth or re- tell you to reject them as not truth, right? Because I am human. I am fallible. I will mess up, and I have messed up. I, I am thankful that the first five years of my sermons have mysteriously disappeared off the Internet. <laughs> so thankful for that. Right? And I dread the day somebody finds the hard drive that they're still on, Right? Because I'm fallible, and I'm still learning. And every day I'm learning more because God is infinite, and I am finite. And so the Holy Spirit is to be the ultimate teacher in your life. And so our job is to pay attention, hear what's being said, but then it's ultimately the Holy Spirit's job to teach us and to apply that into our life. But it also says that he is going to bring the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, back into our remembrance. And this is one of the reasons why it is so important for you this morning to memorize Scripture. You say, but Dale, I have a bad memory. I know. We all do. And the older you get, warning, it gets worse. But, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but you're ministering to someone, you're talking to someone, you're discipling someone, and all of a sudden, a verse comes out of nowhere. A verse that perfectly fits the situation, that perfectly fits what this person needs to hear. And you're thinking to yourself, when did I remember that? When did I I stick that in there? And yet the Holy Spirit calls back what's needed. It's our job to put it in. It's his job to bring it out, to bring those things back to us when we need it. And just as a side note, this is so important when we think about conditions like Alzheimer's and dementia. You can tell what people soaked into their brain when they no longer have the filter And you can see people that when you quote scripture to them, the Holy Spirit is bringing comfort to them because it's already in them. They may not remember it, but it's already there. And so it's so important for you to memorize scripture, memorize songs that minister to your heart. I have seen patients in nursing homes that as soon as you start singing certain hymns, they just calm down. Get it in. Trust him and worry to leave the results to him, the Holy Spirit, working in our lives. Second, not only is he our teacher, but the Spirit comforts us, comforts us by pouring the Father's love into our hearts. Romans 5.5, 5, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So one of the ways that the Holy Spirit comforts us is reminding us that God loves us. That, that, that overflowing, that, that overfilling of God's love into our tiny little hearts to remember that we are loved. If you're here this morning and you're struggling and you're going, man, I don't know if I'm loved or not. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask Him. Pray for that. Fill me with that love. If I am truly a believer, give, beg, it, beg for it. It's not your job to create it in your heart. Like Lewis said, we, this, this is not something we can synthetically create. It has to come from God himself through his spirit. Third, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm going to lump the third one and the fourth one together because for the application, I think they fit well. The fourth thing the Spirit does is seal us, Ephesians 1.13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, the reason why I put these together is because I, I talk to people all the time that struggle with, am I really saved? And I tell them, ask the Holy Spirit. It's not my job to tell you you're saved or not. It's his job, specifically from Scripture. It is his job. When a king would send a letter, he would put a seal on it. That seal would identify this is from the king, right? Denmark this morning, as I was watching the news, they they just inaugurated a new king. First time in 50 years. So now Denmark has a new seal, to know that it's coming from the new king, not the old one, but the new one. And that's, that's the metaphor here. I know we don't use seals other than artistically every once in a while, but, but that wax seal was an identifying mark. It was evidence that this letter belonged to the king himself. And the Bible says that's the Holy Spirit's job in our life, to be that mark, to be that seal. To, to bear witness with ourselves that we are the children of God. That is so encouraging for people who struggle with their salvation. Because so oftentimes what they try to do is jump back into that second type of person that Lewis was talking about, and i got to do all these things, i got to do all these things. And they always fall short, because you always will. Instead, turn to the Holy Spirit. Ask him, pray to him, help me to see that I am a child of God. And the fifth thing the Spirit does for us is serve as a down payment on all that we will inherit from God. Ephesians 1.14, it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? See, the Holy Spirit is a deposit of things to come. In the new heaven and the new earth, we will commune directly with God. 
And in the meantime, we will commune with God because he is with us. He is in us, right? He he is the deposit. He's the down payment, if you will, for something that is coming. And granted, we do not experience it fully. We still struggle with sin. And until that is completely eradicated, there is always going to be a struggle in that relationship and that friendship. But that struggle is always on our side. The, the, when we fail to confess and repent of our sin, there's always going to feel like, I, just, I don't feel connected. I don't, I don't feel like I'm a part. But when we confess and our repent, he is quick and faithful to forgive us, First John tells us. And, and restore not our salvation, that's paid for, that's done, but restore our friendship, our communion with God. I like the way Owen puts it, that there's a difference between our union and our communion, right? When we sin, it breaks our communion. We, we, our, our relationship is damaged, but our union stays the same. I think those are helpful words to just remember that in our own lives. So the Holy Spirit is to teach us. He's to guide us. He's to instruct us. He's to comfort us by pouring out the Father's love. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He seals us. And he is a down payment of all that we are going to inherit from God. Now, that's not all the Holy Spirit does, but that's a pretty big chunk of it. Everything kind of falls under those headings. I want to spend the rest of the sermon looking at our response, the the two-way part of this relationship with him. And basically, the Bible and, and Owen kind of breaks it down into three things that we should not do. First, in Ephesians 4.30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, what he has in mind here is when we are devoted to something other than the holiness that is brought by the Holy Spirit, then we are grieving the Spirit. And you may be asking, well, what does that look like? Well, well, let's just read a couple of more verses after 30. 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 32 says, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So immediate context, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? I don't need a lot of application here. It means stop being bitter. When when you're harboring bitterness, you are grieving the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you are wrathful and angry, you are grieving the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Again, it doesn't take a college degree to understand that. It's it's hard to love and respect a father who's always angry, right? When when you're constantly a rage monster around your children, that, that doesn't foster love. That's grieving those children. We should avoid... Clamor and slander, 
Those things must be removed, it says, from us, along with all malice. So those, those things, again, context right there, those are things that grieve the Holy Spirit. But then he doesn't just stop with the things we shouldn't do, but he says, listen, this, these are things we should do. We should be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So if you want to fan the flame, as, as Timothy talks about, and, 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 or Paul talks about in First Timothy, to, to fan that flame in our lives, right? To, to, to bring the Holy Spirit. It's, it's often referred to as a flame, a, a holy fire. Then these are the things that we need to do. We need to be kind to one another, compassionate with one another, forgiving one another when we don't do those things we are grieving the work of the holy spirit inside of us and again please i want to be clear i'm talking about communion not union as owen would say i'm talking about your friendship with god not your justification with god and when you live in a constant state of grieving the holy spirit you're going to feel alienated isolated from God. Second, we're not to quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, let me be clear here. According to Paul's teaching on this subject in Corinthians, the main purpose of Christian prophecy, so look at the whole book of Corinthians, it was not about divining the future. That's not the kind of prophecy he's talking about in the book of Corinthians. Instead, he says it's rather for the strengthening, encouraging, and comfort of the church with special emphasis on the role of building up the community. Anything that's tearing down the community, he says in Corinthians, that's not prophecy. That, that's the stuff you need to reject. So, so when you're seeking division and fracture, then, then you're going against the spirit of prophecy. But prophecy instead, the main purpose of it is to strengthen and encourage and comfort and to build up the community of the church. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5, verses 12 and 26. And Paul, just a few verses before this passage, again, looking at the whole context, instructed the church how to treat the primary people tasked with the role of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work live in peace with one another the emphasis is less on how we treat and respect the holy spirit himself here and more about how we treat his work and his workers this is this is how we tend to quench the work of the holy spirit in our lives 
right? The Holy Spirit's job is to bring us into remembrance of everything Christ has said, right? The central message of Christ was the gospel, right? So when someone is prophesying, someone is preaching to you to strengthen you and encourage you and build up the community of the body of the church, when you're failing to appreciate those who diligently do that, you're quenching the Spirit. Finally, we're not to resist the Spirit. Acts 7, 50 through 12, or 50 through 52 says, Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So here we have Stephen preaching the gospel to a group of Jewish men, and, and they just don't want to hear it. They, resisting the Spirit, again, let's look at context. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Right? That's something we're not supposed to be doing if we're following the Holy Spirit. And they ground their teeth at him. They're so mad. I've never been that mad. Have y'all ever been that mad that you're like grinding your teeth? I've never been there. But man, it sounds, that sounds mad, right? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. So, Stephen's preaching a sermon about the beauty of the gospel. And in this chapter, we see the most extreme version of resisting the Spirit. We see some extreme reactions to the preaching of the word of Jesus. The audience not only hated what he had to say, but they're trying to distract others by yelling in a loud voice. And then they try to close up their ears so they don't have to hear it, right? So when we talk about resisting the Holy Spirit, it, it, it's, it's, it's tuning out the message of the gospel in our lives. The, the message of conf- confession and repentance, of loving our neighbor, loving our brothers and sisters in our lives. And when that doesn't work, They take him out and they stone him to death. Now, we don't live in a time where public stoning is a common thing in our country. It it is in other countries, but not in our country. And the work of the Spirit this morning is in part to empower whoever's standing up here to proclaim the gospel and the preaching of the word. Why? For the strengthening, encouragement, and comfort of building up the 
body of Christ, just as Paul taught in Corinthians. This means that one of the ways that we live out our relationship with the Spirit is to listen humbly to the Word as it is preached week in and week out by Spirit-empowered preachers. When we are distracted, when we are disinterested, when we are nitpicking of the pastor and the message, we are resisting the Spirit. And we are not going to feel as though we are in relationship with God. Worse, when we just skip out of it altogether. Again, maybe you're that second kind of person that Lewis is talking about. It's like, well, I'm supposed to go to church. That doesn't mean I'm going to like it. You're going to live in poverty. You are going to live as though you don't feel loved. Because you are resisting the Spirit's work in your life. Don't do that this morning. But when we give due honor to the preaching of his word, we are building our friendship with the Holy Spirit. And again, it doesn't matter who's standing here. I'm just the one standing here today. It doesn't matter who's standing here. It's our job to listen and be receiving and asking the Holy Spirit, teach me. Teach me. Take these words because, listen, it, it, this is something that blows me away about the Holy Spirit. I spend all this time reading about a text, praying through a text, feel like this is what, you know, this is the central message of the text. And then I will give a couple of examples based on what the central message of the text is. That's what I call the application, okay? But somebody will walk up to me afterwards and they'll say, man, what you said, it really helped me with X, Y, and Z. And I didn't say anything about that. Right? And at first, when I was younger, I was like, were you listening? You know, like, were you, were you in the building with me? Because that's not the application that I shared this morning. But that's the Holy Spirit taking that message, the central theme of the text, and applying it personally to that person's life. I can't tell you how many times, happens almost every Sunday, somebody comes up to me and says, you were talking directly to me. Like, were you reading my mail this week? Because mail's these little letters, young people, the people, they, it's kind of like emails, right? Yeah, right? Like, like that's the Holy, that's not Dale. That's not Jamie. That's not what other guy stands up here. That's the Holy Spirit taking the truth of the word when someone is not resisting it, someone is not quenching it, and, and they're allowing the Holy Spirit to teach them. But when we are stiff-necked, when we are bitter, when we are angry, when we are slanderous, you're not going to experience that. And you'll leave Sunday mornings going, I got nothing out of that. If, you, if that's consistent, listen, sometimes I know the sermon topic is not about you that week. But if you get nothing out of it consistently, I really want you to ask yourself this morning, am I quenching the Spirit? 
Am I resisting the Spirit? Am I grieving the Spirit? By the way I'm acting outside of this room. Because like Lewis said, you may be one of those soldiers that feel like, well, I'm on duty, I'm on parade when you're in the building. But as soon as you leave, you're off duty. And that off-duty life will affect what you hear and what you receive on Sunday mornings. I want you to grow in your friendship with the Holy Spirit. And we do that by not clinching, not grieving, and not resisting this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Spirit to live inside of us. It is so easy to get caught up in our flesh, to get caught up in the cares of the world and all the comfort that it offers and fail to take advantage of the comforter, the only true comfort we will ever find in this world. And God, we need comfort because it's hard if everything was easy, we wouldn't need a comforter. But Lord, you know that it's hard. You, Jesus told his disciples, if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And so you knew before we knew that we needed this desperately. And I thank you for that. And Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts. I pray your Holy Spirit even now would be convicting each of us, God, myself included, of, of anywhere that we are quenching you, anywhere we are resisting you in our lives, God. Anywhere that we are grieving you this morning by our sin. And Lord, that would bring us to the good news of the gospel of, of confessing and repenting of our sin and begging for your forgiveness that you so freely give to us. As Lewis said, when we are in the position of beggars, we are most open to receive the gift of the comforter this morning. So God, I pray you would tear down the pride in our hearts that resists you and instead embrace you this morning. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that can't claim to be a friend of God this morning, I pray that they would confess their sin and, and turn to you. I pray your Holy Spirit even now would be drawing them, Lord, to yourself. And they would trust you and give their life to you. And Father, I ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.